Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. We're very delighted to present an evening of short stories in partnership with Pindrop, who we've been working with since 2014, inviting guests such as William Boyd, Sebastian Folks, Tim Winton, Will Self, Stephen Fry and Juliet Stevenson. In 2015, we also established a unique short story award that emphasises the importance of storytelling and, in the spirit of the RA Summer Exhibition, invites writers to contribute as part of an open submission process. This year's competition closes on the 23rd of April, with the winner being announced in an event this summer, so watch this space. For tonight's event, we're delighted to welcome not one, but two special guests who have used our exhibition Revolution Russian Art 1917 to 1932 as a starting point for their selection of literature. So I'll now hand over to the CEO and the co-founder of Pindrop, Simon Oldfield, who will introduce our guests for tonight. Thank you. Thanks very much, and uh, welcome, good evening, and welcome to Pinjop at the Royal Academy of Arts. Um, I'm Simon Oldfield, I'm the co-founder of Pinjop, as Amy said, um, and this is part of our ongoing series with the Royal Academy, and it's a great pleasure to be here to introduce this evening. We're all about introducing and bringing to the stage extraordinary people who read short fiction in response to the main themes and the rhythm of the exhibition programme. So we're here now against the backdrop of the Russian Revolution Exhibition, Revolution, Russian Art from 1917 to 1932. I'm sure many of you have seen the exhibition or will see it. And this evening we're going to be having a short story read to us, which was written in 1919. It's going to be read by two of our most cherished British actresses, two dames, Dame Eileen Atkins and Dame Sean Phillips. They have graced our screens for decades. They have taken centre stage an iconic film, TV productions, and award-winning plays. Their credits are many. I will miss out huge numbers of them, I'm sure, but just to name a few. For me, Eileen's performance in Gosford Park was particularly memorable, and of course, more recently in Cranford, for which she won a BAFTA and an Emmy. And Sean, who has taken starring roles in era-defining film and TV productions from Beckett, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, and of course, the iconic BBC adaptation of I, Claudius, for which she won a BAFTA for Best Actress. So we really are in for a treat to have both of those here this evening together. They're going to be reading for us a short story. It's written by Yefem Zazulia. Please correct my uh, pronunciation. And it's a satire on the events that took place at the time, perhaps a protest against the sort of arbitrary nature of dictatorial rule. So... Please welcome to the stage Sean Phillips and Eileen Atkins. The story of Ack and humanity. The unexpected. It seemed a day like any other. The city looked the same as usual. The streets and houses had their ordinary appearance. The sky wore its customary blue. The pavement spread gray and indifferent as always. Suddenly, some men appeared carrying large buckets of paste. They began to put up posters on the walls, doing it quickly, with tears streaming into the buckets. The posters were terse and to the point. Citizens, 
The Council of Public Welfare has decided to reorganize life on the basis of justice and progress. For this purpose, the Council will pass on the right of life of every inhabitant of our city. Those whose existence is found to be superfluous will cease to exist within 24 hours. Appeals against the decisions of the Council may be filed in writing within that time. All appeals will be decided by the Council before sunset of the same day. Remarks. One, every inhabitant is to submit to the orders of the Council of Public Welfare unconditionally and absolutely. A committee of the Council consisting of three members will visit every house. Their questions are to be answered truthfully. Everyone whose existence is found to be superfluous will be examined personally and a record kept. The order goes into effect with its publication. No unnecessary human material will be tolerated. No sentimental considerations will be allowed to interfere with our plans for the public welfare. This applies to all the inhabitants of our city without exception, including men, women, children, rich and poor. Those who will lack the courage to terminate their existence, if ordered to do so by the Council of Public Welfare, will be aided by the Council. <laughs> the sentences will be carried out by the friends and neighbours of the condemned, or by a special military detachment. No person may leave the city until the work of determining the right to life has been completed. The Council of Public Welfare. Have you read it? Seen the posters? Have you read it? Is it possible? People began to collect at every street corner. Soon the crowds grew so large that traffic ground to a halt. Some persons suddenly grew so weak they had to lean against the walls for support. Many wept, others fainted. By nightfall, great numbers of the inhabitants were ill. Have you read it? Terrible. Outrageous. It's our own fault. We elected the council. Why did we give them such power? True, true. No, it's our own fault. Well, it was a terrible mistake, but who would have believed such a thing? We thought the council would help bring better times, but to resort to such methods... Are such good men on the council, too? Indeed they are. And Ack has been elected president of the council. What? Really? What? Oh, that's great. Where did you hear it? I'm just coming from the council headquarters. It's a fact. Ack has been elected, all right. Oh, what luck. Ack's a fine man. Yes, yes. He's a just man. Friends, Ack is the right man. I rejoice to hear that he's become president of the council. He's a just and wise man. True, true. His decisions will be just. I I'm sure. Citizens, we need not worry about it. I know Ack. He's all right. Now, we can depend on his good judgment and sense of justice. Only the evil and useless elements will be eliminated. You can be absolutely rely on Ack for that. Yes, I'm sure of it. Ack will never permit any injustice. Tell me, dear friend, do, do you think they will pass favourably in my case? You know I've always been a good citizen. You remember, of course, that I was in that shipwreck where 20 passengers jumped into one lifeboat. You know, there were too many for that boat. It would have capsized. It meant the death for all of us. Well, five men had to be sacrificed to save the other 15. I was the first to volunteer. Now, I jumped overboard and... No, what's the matter? Why do you smile so incredulously? 
Well, of course, I'm old and weak now, but at that time I was young and strong, and yes, and brave too. Indeed, I was. Why, I, don't you remember that shipwreck? All the papers were full of it at the time. The other four men went down, but I was saved. I mean, it's just luck. What do you think, friend? Would they let me live? And me? What about me? Didn't I give my whole fortune away to the poor? It's a long time ago now, but I have all the documents to prove it. Yes, sir, I have. Well, I don't know. Who can tell? It all depends on the viewpoint of the council. Let me tell you something, my dear fellow citizens. A primitive helpfulness or usefulness to those around you is not enough to justify one's right to life, else every stupid servant girl could claim that right. That silly old nonsense. You're terribly old-fashioned, that's what you are. Really reactionaries. Indeed. What then makes a human life valuable? Tell me that. God, yes, yes, tell us. Well, I don't know, but I... You don't know? Then what the hell are you talking about? Well, pardon me, but just let me explain. Look, but... uh, look, something's happened. Everyone's running. Oh, a riot! Save yourselves! Help! Help! A panic! Oh, my God! Run, fellows, run! Save yourselves! Halt! Halt! Stand still, men. Order! Quiet! Don't increase the panic! Halt! Halt! The flight! Excitement, shouting and yelling, everybody running, red-cheeked youths, mortal fear in their eyes, clerks, employees of banks and offices, bridegrooms in starched white shirts, gentlemen of leisure, actors, baseball fans, football huskies, loafers, swindlers, rowdies, poets, lovers, writers, broad-shouldered sportsmen, dowdies, frequenters of houses of ill fame, grafters, windbags, long-haired fakes, melancholics with a yearning black eye, misers on their lips a cynical smile, good-natured simpletons, clever scoundrels, all ran. And stout, heavy women ran. Tall, skinny women, haughty, oversexed, wives of fools and wives of bright men, gossips, cocottes, prostitutes, faithless women, brainless, envious, proud geese, their hair dyed, indifferent females, good women, grisettes, now all with the same expression of terror on their faces. And old men ran, cadaverous, knock-kneed, bow-legged, stout, fine-looking, ugly, misshapen, landlords, usurers, usurers, prison guards, self-satisfied whorehouse owners, grey-haired lackeys, respectable grandfathers, lifetime of swindle and deceit back of them, fat gamblers, their fingers covered with diamonds, big-bellied libertines, they all ran. Crowds, mobs of them. Great masses of rags were wrapped about their bodies and limbs. Steam poured from their mouths. Their shouts and curses bounced off the well-hidden indifference of the abandoned buildings. Some ran without possessions. Desperately, they clung to the bags, boxes, pillows and bundles in their hands. For dear life, they held onto their jewellery, their money, their children. They yelled and screamed. They turned around, wrung their hands and ran faster. But they were all forced to return. Armed men shot, fired volleys into them, attacked them with clubs and guns, and the runaways turned back, leaving many dead and wounded. In the evening, the city assumed its usual appearance again. The inhabitants kept to their houses, most of them in bed. Desperate hope flickered in their hearts. 
The proceedings were simple. Your name? Alexander Ross. Age? 39. Profession? Cigarette maker. Don't you lie to me. I'm telling you the truth. I've been 14 years in the trade. I'm a hard-working man and I support my family. Where's your family? Here. This is my wife and there's my son. Yes, Citizen Ross. Mm. General condition, medium. Citizen Ross, what are your amusements? What do you enjoy in life? Well, I, I, I enjoy many things. I, I, I enjoy... Oh, I love my fellow men. I, I, I love life itself. Don't be nervous, Citizen Ross. Be more precise. We've no time to waste. Tell us clearly, what do you love in life? I love... Well, my son, he plays the violin so beautifully, and I, I, I love a good meal. I, I'm no glutton, but I enjoy good food, and I love women. I, I like to watch them on the street, and I, I, I love my work. I make 500 cigarettes an hour, and a good rest after the day's work, and, 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 and lots more besides. Oh, I love life. Calm yourself, citizen, Ross. Stop your whining. Your poor material, comrade. You have a miserable humdrum existence, semi-phlegmatic, semi-sanguinical, activity below medium, no hope of improvement, passivity 75%, still worse in Mrs. Ross. Your boy is a simpleton, but perhaps, how old is your son, Mr. Ross? Stop crying. 13, sir. All right then, Citizen Ross. Your son may go on living. We'll postpone his case for five years. As for you, in the name of the Council of Public Welfare, for the high purpose of clearing life from all superfluous rubbish, from indifferent existences which clog the way of progress, I command you, Citizen Ross, and you, Mrs. Ross, to terminate your lives within 24 hours. Don't shout. Stop that. Give the woman something for her nerves. Call the guard. This fellow will hardly manage it himself. The Grey Cabinet. The Grey Cabinet stood in the corridor of the main office of the Council of Public Welfare. In appearance, it was just an ordinary, well-made cabinet with its usual stupidly thoughtful expression. It was about three feet wide and less than four feet in depth, but it was big enough to serve as the cemetery for a hundred thousand lives. The grey cabinet bore two short inscriptions. Catalogue of the superfluous, character records. The catalogue contained several subdivisions, among them the following categories. Subject to impressions but not able to differentiate. Minor followers. Passive. Lacking centres. The characteristics were brief and concise. Occasionally there were some ironical remarks by the specialists, but in such cases, Ack, the president of the council, never failed to make a marginal note on the document in red pencil reading, the superfluous should not be insulted. We reproduce here with some specimen records. Superfluous number 14623, physically sound, mechanic, not fond of his job, type of least resistance, mentality below par. On Sundays and holidays, stupefies his brain with strong drink. 
exerted energy during the revolution, wore a red tie and kept buying potatoes because of his cowardly fear of hunger. Proud of his proletarian origin, took no active part in the revolution, beats his children within 24 hours. Superfluous number 15201. Speaks eight languages. Whatever language he uses, his friends are always bored. <laughs> Has a passion for studying the mechanism of cigarette lighters. Very self-confident. Seems to have acquired his self-assurance from his philological studies. Demands the greatest respect from all who come in contact with him. A windbag. Sweetly amiable with people, purely out of innate cowardice. Is fond of killing flies and other insects. Rarely experiences joy within 24 hours. Superfluous number 4356. Yells at her servant out of sheer boredom. Secretly eats the film of fresh milk and the fatty layer of the soup. Reads cheap romances. Spends whole days lolling about on the couch. Her deepest desire? To sew a dress with yellow sleeves and jutting sides. For 12 years, she was the object of a talented inventor's affection. She had no idea what he did for a living, thought he was an electrician. She left him and married a leather merchant, has no children, is often capricious and cries for no reason. Wakes in the middle of the night, orders the servant to heat up the samovar, drinks tea and eats. Useless creature within 24 hours. The Council. President Ack and his Council of Public Welfare were assisted in their labors by a large staff of specialists, among whom there were physicians, psychologists, technicians, inspectors, social workers, and writers. All of them worked intensively and rapidly. There were days when a couple of specialists sent as many as a hundred persons to their doom. The grey cabinet was bursting with records in which the exactness of the phrases competed with the author's limitless self-assuredness. The offices of the Executive Bureau of the Council resembled a veritable beehive. Work continued there from early morning till late at night. Men kept coming and going, issuing orders, signing papers, sending out execution squads. Scores of clerks sat at long tables, writing busily, hardly taking time for lunch. President Ack was at a separate desk, his hard, narrow eyes staring at something apparently visible only to himself, thinking a thought only he understood which bent his back and turned the hair on his big stubborn head grayer than ever. Something was building up between him and his servants. Something seemed to have risen between his sleepless thought and the blind, thoughtless hands of the executioners. X doubts. One morning, the members of the Council of Public Welfare entered Ack's private study to make their daily reports. To everyone's surprise, Ack was not in his accustomed place. It was very strange, as the president was famed for his extreme punctuality and settled habits of work. He could not be found. Messengers were sent to every part of the city. The telephones were kept busy. 
but President Ack could not be found. Late that afternoon, Ack was accidentally discovered in the grey cabinet. <laughs> they found him sitting on the paper graves of the executed, evidently even deeper in thought than usual. What does it mean, Comrade President, his colleagues asked. What are you doing here? Can't you see? I'm thinking, he replied wearily. But why here? It's the best place for it. I'm thinking of the executed, and nothing is more productive of thought than the records of their extermination. These documents here are most informative. Someone gave a short, dry laugh. Don't laugh, Ack upbraided him sternly, shaking a record in his face. The study of the lives of the murdered has taught me a great deal. Yes, a great deal, he emphasized. A crucial moment has arrived. I am thinking of new ways of progress. You people have shown that you can glibly prove the superfluity of human life. Even the stupid among you can readily mouth a few convincing formulae, but I am sitting here and wondering whether our methods are right. He sighed deeply and then added, speaking very low, where is the right way? When I study the living, I come to the conclusion that three quarters of them should be exterminated. But when I study the dead, I begin to doubt my judgment. And I feel that, wouldn't it have been better to let them live and to, to love and pity them? I don't know myself. I feel it is the great conundrum of the human question. Yes, the great tragic conundrum of human history. He grew silent, a distracted look on his face. Digging down into the mountain of death records, he began to read one document after another, aghast at the incredible poverty of their contents. The members of the Council of Public Welfare retired quietly without a word, in the first place because they knew it was useless to object to act, and in the second place because they simply didn't dare to do so. They all felt that a crisis had come, that progress would take a new turn. It did not please them at all. Everything had been working so smoothly in an orderly and systematic manner. And now, what was going to happen now? What would this man, who had lost his mind and who had unheard of power over the town, conceive of... Now, the crisis. President Ack disappeared. A thorough search was made, but Ack could not be found. Some said he'd been seen on the outskirts of the city, sitting in a tree and weeping. Others claimed that Ack had been seen in his garden, crawling on all fours and eating dirt. The activities of the Council of Public Welfare began to lose their former vim and energy. Somehow things did not work right in the absence of Ack. Presently, trouble started. Some citizens barricaded their doors and refused to admit the examiners and specialists of the council. Others even dared to laugh off the questions about their right to life and to defy the executioners. 
Soon the situation grew very serious. Cases of disobedience and resistance multiplied. Finally, some of the boldest inhabitants decided to arrest the chief dignities of the council and subject them to the test of superfluity. Wild excitement reigned in the city. Superfluous citizens, already condemned but not yet executed, began to appear on the streets, contrary to the strict orders of the authorities. It was well known that the appearance of a condemned on the streets was an offence invariably punished by immediate death. Moreover, the condemned behaved with the greatest impudence, as if they had a right to life. They ignored the decisions and commands of the council and nonchalantly took up their former lives again. They indulged in their customary recreations and some even celebrated marriages. The government and the press declared that it was nothing short of anarchy. On the streets, the people rejoiced. At last, at last, hurrah! Hurrah for life! Three cheers for the condemned! Down with the superfluity test! Down with the council! Down with the murderers! But don't you think, citizen, that life has become easier now? There's a good deal less superfluous human junk now. There's more elbow room, so to speak. Shame on you. Do you mean that the executed had no right to life? Why, I know a great many that should really be done away with, but they're still among us, yes, indeed. Let me tell you this, my good man. Some of the best and noblest men have been eliminated. Believe me, I know what I'm talking about. That may be so, citizen, but mistakes are liable to happen. By the way, tell me, do you know what's become of Ack? Search me, it's strange, though. Ack was seen up a tree and weeping all the time. Oh, nonsense, man. Ack is crawling on all fours in his garden and eating dirt. Is that possible? My wife swears her mother's cousin saw him with her own eyes. I don't believe it. Old women's tales. What is it about Ack? Oh, to hell with Ack. To hell with him. Serves him right. No more Ack for us. You rejoice too soon, my friends. Ack is to return this evening, and the council will take up its work in earnest now. What? What? Where'd you get that? What? How do you know? Who told you? Never mind who told me. I know it all right. There's too much human rubbish left yet. That's what I say. We must get rid of it. We've got to clean our city thoroughly. It's not half done yet. The hell you say? Don't you talk to me like that, or I'll Look, see... look, fellows. They're putting up posters again. There, in the corner. Oh, my God. I'll run over and see. Let's go over and read them. Make way, make way. The posters. Lord, in heaven have mercy on us. Out of the way, everybody. New posters. Men carrying large buckets of paste ran puffing through the streets. Packets of gigantic pink posters unrolled with a joyous crackle and were stuck onto the walls. Their contents were simple and clear. Fellow citizens, it is hereby announced that every inhabitant of our city has been granted the right to life. The order goes into effect at once. The Council of Public Welfare has been abolished and its destructive work suppressed. Its place has been taken by a new commission to be known as the Control of Human Happiness. <laughs> Citizens rejoice. You are, each and every one of you, precious beings. Your right to life is self-evident and incontestable, henceforth and forever. 
it is your sacred duty to enjoy and be happy. The control of human happiness has appointed a special committee consisting of three members with instructions to visit every inhabitant of the city at least once a day. They will respectfully congratulate the citizen on their right to life and prepare the records of happiness. You are kindly requested to aid the committees in their study of happiness by giving them the most detailed information. The records of happiness will be kept in the pink cabinet <laughs> and preserved for the benefit of future generations. The control of human happiness. Gates and doors were thrown open. Windows and balconies came alive. Voices grew merry. There was laughter, song, music. Stout young ladies pounded the piano. From early morning to late at night, gramophones whizzed. Viol old violins and clarinets and trombones helped along. In the evening, the men took off their coats, sat on the verandas with their legs spread wide, listening to the radio and belching their profound contentment. The streets of the city were crowded. Young fellows went joyriding with their girls in autos, cabs, and on motorcycles built for two. No one feared to leave his house or to be seen on the promenade. In the cafes, it was almost impossible to find a vacant seat. But the most rushing business was done by stores where mirrors and looking glasses were sold. The people became obsessed by the passion of watching their reflection. Photographers and portrait painters worked overtime. These portraits were framed and adorned the walls of private flats. A pair of such portraits even resulted in murder. It was all in the papers. A young man renting a room in a flat demanded that the portraits of his host's parents be removed from his walls. The hosts were offended and killed the young man, tossing him out of the fifth floor window. Self-admiration and self-esteem grew enormously. Quarrels and fights multiplied. The hot words usually exchanged on such occasions now assumed a peculiar form. It was sure a mistake that you were overlooked by the Council of Public Welfare, superfluous junk that you are. Too bad they didn't complete their job. You bet they didn't complete it or you wouldn't be here now. On the whole, however, such little matters did not affect the general tenor of everyday existence. The inhabitants indulged in more food and drink than before. Their mothers, wives, and sweethearts prepared a larger stock of preserves, and the demand for warm underwear increased very considerably because the people were now more careful of their health. The committees of the control of human happiness conscientiously visited the inhabitants and questioned everyone about his life, joy, and happiness. Many stated that they were getting along very well indeed, and they took great pains to convince the official inquirers how greatly they enjoyed living. Look at me, some would exclaim, making pickles, curing herring. Don't I look fine? I'm all right. <laughs> Yesterday, I weighed myself, gained eight pounds in two weeks. Not bad, eh? Not wood. There were some, however, who complained about comforts and amenities and lamented that the Council of Public Welfare hadn't done its job. Just think of it, a young man protested. The other day, 
We got into a streetcar, my wife and I. Not a single seat to be had. Outrageous! We had to stand for several minutes. It's evident that the city is still overcrowded. Too much junk left. They should have eliminated it at the right time, that's what I have to say. An old gentleman grumbled, be sure to note down, Mr. Inspector, that neither yesterday nor the day before was I congratulated on the fact of my existence. It's a shame, such neglect. You don't expect me to come to you to receive congratulations, do you? And then, at the headquarters of the Control of Human Happiness, everyone was feverishly busy. At the long tables, the clerks worked like bees. The pink cabinet was bursting with the records of happiness. The documents described the lives of the inhabitants in every detail. Birth dates, marriages, christenings, love affairs and adventures. Everything was chronicled at length, frankly and truthfully. Many of the records read like veritable novels. Presently, the citizens requested the control of human happiness to publish the records for general circulation. There was a tremendous popular demand for such reading matter. President Ack was at his desk as before. He sat in silence, evidently in deep thought. His back had become more bent and his hair had turned white. From time to time, he would walk over to the pink cabinet and sit down on the records there as he had formerly sat on the grey cabinet. One morning, Ack jumped out of the pink cabinet, shouting, they must be exterminated. Yes, exterminated, destroyed, killed, killed. But then he gazed fixedly at the men writing at the long tables recording the living with the same zeal they had recorded the dead. And with a despairing wave of his hand, he turned and rushed out of the office. Ack disappeared, disappeared forever. Various stories were circulated about his disappearance, conflicting stories that before long became legends, but Ack was never found. Ack had killed off many inhabitants of the city. Ack granted the right to life to those that had survived. Ack wanted to kill the inhabitants off again. But the people, among whom there were some good men, some of indifferent quality, and some very poor human material, they continued to live to this day as if Ack had never existed and there had never been any perplexing problem about the right to life. Thank you so much. That was amazing. Um, I had the privilege of having been privy to a rehearsal last week the two of them in our studio, and it was amazing. But that was incredible. I was like, I've never seen anything like it. It was like, the ping pong between the two of you is great. It was really, really wonderful. I'm sure you all agree. Yeah, look at those smiling faces. That's great. <laughs> That's very good. 
Um, okay, um, I'm going to just ask a few questions and um, open up a little conversation, and then you'll have the opportunity to ask a few questions as well. We're not experts on the Russian Revolution, so no questions that specifically test our knowledge on the, that front. But everything else is fair game, I'm told, so that's good. Um, okay, I'll just open up with the story, because we've, you've just read that. You probably need to catch your breath a little bit, actually. It was quite a feat. We gave it to you, and I think we, you wrote back very politely, oh, yes, it's very difficult, but very, very clever, thank you, yes, but very difficult. But I think it fits very well with the show, which I'm sure many of you have seen, and I think it's a, a slightly different take on the perspective of the Russian Revolution, possibly touches on some of the political landscape that we're all experiencing now. It would just be great to hear your thoughts on the story itself and working together on it. Do I start with you, Eileen? Or... Oh! Uh, oh. <laughs> You're talking to an actor. Um, we, we take the material and... Do it. <laughs> um, if there's something spectacularly horrid about it, you don't do it. But um, it was a bit too Brechtian for me. And that's, it, it was too standing outside and looking at something and having to place it there. But I think if we'd read something about all the killings that happened, that would have been very depressing. And I think probably... The writer had to do that to get his point across. He had to detach. Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think actually because of the climate, he had to sort of take that perspective. So it was actually permitted to be published, I think, as well. Yes. But you worked together about 25 years ago, I think you told me earlier. A long time time ago. The only thing I can remember about it, because everybody can date it from that, was um, the the, the great um, gale happened.
them all into, uh, in not Leningrad, was St. Petersburg it was then, um, the Great Revolution, charging across the Hermitage. And um, I suddenly, there was my ex-husband. <laughs> he was the leading priest with a great banner and everything. And I was so surprised, I said in a very loud voice, oh, there's my ex-husband. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then we, we sat back and a bit more went on. And then Lenin came on. And I said quietly to the stage manager next to me, I've had an affair with him. <laughs> and, and the woman next to me turned to her friend and said, she thinks she's had Lenin now. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing that story. <laughs> oh, um, okay. Uh, and you also told me some very funny stories last week, which you don't have to tell me now, but I was going to ask you, over your fantastic careers you've both enjoyed, you promised you might share a highlight and a low light with me. Have you got anything here? <laughs> I've got lots of low ones. Yes, I, I can only think of low. Yes, do, you, do you want I to know. share? No, you, you go. <laughs> you go first. Well, um, my low, I think my lowest was doing a simply... I really do try and do decent scripts. <laughs> and I, I, I really needed the money. Um, and I, I, I did a horror movie with Joan Collins. <laughs> it, was, it was a spin-off of um, the, not The Extortionist. What was that film called by Billy? The Exorcist. The Exorcist. Exorcist, Exorcist oh, Billy, right. Billy Freeman. Extortionist. Extortionist. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it was a terrible moment when I had to go and do the uh, do an ex do the exorcism um, from the prayer book, right. and it was all in Latin, and I couldn't learn it, and I don't speak Latin, so I'd done it. I'd gone to a friend of mine who did speak Latin, and I'd had it printed inside a Bible, phonetically all the way through. And I'd practiced and practiced. We had this mad Hungarian director. And I, I got to do the scene, and I was going up the stairs chanting this. And he came and said, no, no, cut, 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 no, 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 no. And he took the Bible and he said, you don't need that. <laughs> you are, I was playing a nun. You are a nun who knows it all. He wouldn't let me have that. I, 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 That's so mean. I, I just did gibberish. I, I, I <laughs> that was one of the low lights. <laughs> Sean, you don't have to well, share did, one. It's I, okay. One I feel like I'm being very years. mean. Now. Actually, I didn't ever feel depressed when, they, when when you're young. It's quite good to have a lot of flops because you get a lot of practice that way. You know, you get to do different <laughs> things. And I had three flops in one year at the same theatre in the West End oh on Shaftesbury Avenue. And the box office manageress at the time at the Queen's was Welsh, and I'm Welsh. And when I turned up for my first night tickets, my complimentary tickets for the first night of the third flop, <laughs> she looked up from her thing and said, Oh, oh, Miss Phillips, oh, oh, we do dread you. <laughs> 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 uh, 
But I've remembered a story about an ex-husband of mine, suddenly, <laughs> I, which okay. I'd completely forgotten. It's a very small one. It's not yeah, quite as entertaining as yours. It's very short. And my, my husband was out um, on the rouse, I suppose you'd, you'd call it, with uh, Nureyev, who just arrived in this country from Russia. He escaped, mm -hmm. and uh, we got to know him. And they went out together. And they were dancing the twist, I think, was in fashion at the time. And they were standing side by side in Al Burnett's nightclub in Swallow Street, busily doing the twist. And it was teaching Nureyev to do the twist, you know, so grateful. And he heard a hostess came to join them and said, danced the, the, the twist a bit. And she said to Nureyev, are you Polish? <laughs> and she said, no. And he said, no. I am Tartar. And went on. I am Tartar. Okay, I'm going to. This is getting out of hand. It is a bit, isn't it? I'm glad you're it in. You'll be telling your, your secrets here. No, no, no. um, you can share a highlight as well if you like, but the lowlights seem to be much more fun. No. I enjoy most things. It's all been, yeah, it's been upwards. We both enjoy most things. We enjoy our work, don't we, Sean? We like it anyway. We, we don't moan about it. Yeah. We, I mean, we like going to the theatre and doing yes, it. Yes, and doing it. Theatre, I'm not too keen on film. Uh, oh. And becoming dames, did that you know, oh. change your life beyond recognition or oh, did it not really do anything? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to tell you the story of when I, I find got... DBE, got the dame, and I, when I got CBE, I crept out <laughs> and hadn't done, they, as you come out, that says, do you want a photograph or yeah. don't you want a photograph? Yeah. I'd, I'd done a rather grand curtsy for my DBE, and <laughs> I was feeling rather pleased with myself. <laughs> and I, feeling absolutely full of myself, I came out and, of the part, and I, I thought, why don't you go and have a photograph, Eileen? Come on, yeah. <laughs> Do the photograph, the press photograph. So I went. There was there were two photographers, and they were taking photographs of Patrick Stewart, who had just got an OBE. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were so kind; they weren't looking at me at all. So I thought, oh, I'll go and greet Patrick. I know him, and then I'll get my photograph taken. <laughs> so um, I went over and said, oh, Patrick, congratulations on your OBE. And he was with his wife and two children. And the photographer said, Patrick, could you get your friend out of the way? <laughs> so I never had a photograph. Oh, no, I don't. I don't have a photo. Either. No. Oh. You're both very funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So I'm going to allow you to all ask a few questions. Hello. Thank you so much. I want you both to have your own chat show. <laughs> I tune in every night. <laughs> I'd like to know what the archer's dance is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't do it. It's a little sort of country dance. Yeah. You could all do one. Yeah. You know, if you, okay. you know. It, the, the tune I'll, does ask you to do a little dance, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, just because we're here as a response to the exhibition, I want to know um, on what level does like other art forms influence theatre and film that you do, so galleries, music, you know, how much do you use that in the work that you then go on to create yourself? And is it useful to you? That's a good question. That is. Can yes. I claim that question as well, please? Yes. That's yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Hugely, actually. Well, I think. Yes, I way, think. I, honestly, I was, I was talking, oddly enough, to a director this morning on the phone who was complaining about um, <clears throat> some young men, actors, 
who um, kind of couldn't carry themselves. You know, and he said, well, when I was directing a lot and I had a lot of actors, he used to take them to the ballet, you know, just to watch the feet, you know, just mm. to see the shoulders and just to get an idea, you know, of, because there's such a lot of shuffling about and, and slouching. And it, it's just nice to know, you know, how other people, how other people, other disciplines are good, you know, and watching, um, uh, watching music, you know, being performed. And, and I, I live in art galleries because we, we both travel a lot for work and I know that we, I get postcards, very good postcards from you, yes, from yes, galleries all over the world. And, and um, you know, so obviously you do it as well. First thing you do when you get to a new town is go to the art gallery on the Tuesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I very envious of uh, yeah. other. Um, oh, so am I. I'm, I'm so, so envious, envious yeah. of musicians oh, and dancers, yes. particularly yes. Uh, and singers, because um, unfortunately our profession is one that absolutely anybody in this room can say, "I can. I'm an actor. I can act." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but at least with all the others, you have got to get to a certain professionalism mm. yeah. before you even can put one step on the stage or, mm. or play an instrument. And I do find it immensely irritating in our profession that you can be... Successful, very successful. We're not necessarily... Uh, you can't condemn some of the people. Somebody, I believe, somebody like James Corden, for example, never had a lesson of any kind, yeah, never yeah. did any voice work, and nothing like that. Just suddenly got up and did it, and he was terrific. And he was marvellous. Um, yeah. So I next time want to be in a profession, if yes. I come back again, where there's yes. a bit more discipline. Yes. And I love yes. the discipline. I love the ballet. Yeah. And um, I, I, I'm so envious of their discipline. It, I think the hardest thing for any artist, is, including acting, is to know how to work. That's the hardest yes. thing about acting, is finding. It takes a lifetime yes. to find out how to practice, yes. you know, how to learn. It's a really difficult thing to learn. You, and you don't have it when you're young. It's a, you can't know that. So it takes a long time. But with music, it's easier to see how you have to work. You know what you have to do in order to reach a certain level, in order to be fit to be listened to. And with dance, yeah. the same. Whereas with actors, you can, you can slop about a lot, yes. actually. But I haven't seen you both work with so much discipline and professionalism and, and very diligently marking your scripts and being so, you know, it's a very, you know, well honed craft, you know, you obviously yeah. bring so much to it. Yeah. So I think I'd have to disagree with both of you. I think the good ones stand out <laughs> and you two well, definitely are those. I'm, I'm happy to say that most of the great actors I've worked for, who I think are really great, yeah. having just said about James Gordon, he's an, he's an exception. Mm. But most of the great actors I work with do secretly work, oh, they work very, so hard. very yes. hard yeah. to make it look easy. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Also, yeah. I think looking at other forms of art, you see them changing, and often you don't notice the movements in your own. Mm. Yes, exactly. Art yes, change, yes. don't you? Yes. So you know, you notice them changing. You think, oh well, maybe mm. I, for myself, for example, you know, I can't bear women playing men. But often yes. I say to myself, it's just a movement, and you're not going with it. You yes. know, um, yes. 
it, 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 that's the movement yeah. in your yeah. art at the moment. Yeah. So, but they're lucky too. I think was, I was at a concert last night. I said to a mutual friend of ours who took me, who takes you out as well. I know to things. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, oh, I'd love to be a musician. I used to long to be a musician when I was younger. And he said, yeah, because you know when you walk into a concert hall that, that everybody there on that stage has achieved a certain level or they wouldn't be there. You know, you know yeah. that every single one of them has, has earned that place. And you can't do that with a, with a play. Very often. And also they have a chance to do the classics beautifully and wonderfully. They, they're not allowed to muck about with them and have women, exactly. you know, they, they, don't, yes. they don't have the timpanist yes. playing double bass and, you know, they don't do that. They, no. they, they just do it. Well, it's film, wonderful. even film doesn't do it. It's only theatre. It, it, yes, it's only theatre. Yeah. Mm. There you go. And you read a lot as well. You, you we both, both read Yeah, we both read a lot. Yes. Yeah. 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 Huge amount. Yeah. And, you, and you also uh, record books as well. I mean, we were talking earlier yeah, about yeah. Mm. Graham Swift's Mother and Sunday. Yeah, I'm doing that. Yes. 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 Um, so yes, art and literature. I mean, I think I agree with you, and I think it's. Uh, I think anyone, in my experience, that you know, works within any art form, is very much engaged with a much broader, mm. a broader remit. Mm. Um, I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions. It was a pleasure to feel like I had a story read to me by both of you. Who would you most like to read a story to you, and what story would that be? Very good question. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I know the voice that I used to love more than any other, but I can't imagine what story what I would story? like to tell. Who, who mm. And that's Paul Schofield. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I used to be mad about Sco yeah. Paul Schofield. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I can't do it, but that voice, mm. when it, it, yeah. uh, it seemed to come from the earth somewhere. Yeah. But yes. What yeah. story? He'd have what to read story? something mm. rather oh, thrillingly. Gosh, that's, t that's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, is there a voice that you would like to hear, though? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. We'll have to come back to you. I, I, yes, I'll have to think about that. Okay. I, I can't choose one. Yeah. Actors, a very um, a mutual friend of ours, and, um, uh, Joan Plowright, is, is, very, is completely blind now. And she finds it terribly difficult, and I think most actors do, find it very, she finds it quite difficult to listen to the spoken oh, oh, books. Oh, really? Because in your head, you're giving the actor notes all the time. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> You know, you think, yes. oh, you know, the stressing. I was, I was watching Call the Midwife the other night, and I was shrieking at the television <laughs> and all the wrong stresses. Oh, <laughs> yes. a lot of that. Yes, yeah. yes. You know, you, yes. Somebody yes. says you've got your hat on. Yes, you know, yes. You've yeah. got your hat. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Do you ever mentor younger actors? No, I'm rotten at it. No, I'm not a teacher. I really no, I'm not a teacher. Right. So that's a no then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very nice to young actors. I try yes. and help them get jobs. Yes. Mm. But I won't I do any acting, teaching. Teaching. Yes. You'll support them in other ways. Too. Yes. Yes. Mm. Okay. Um, could you maybe just tell us what you're moving on to next? I know you might be going down to Cornwall next, I think, to start filming again. And Sean, I know you're going off to do some very exciting filming too, but maybe you could share. 
what is next for both of you? Well, I guess I'm off down to Cornwall to do lovely, jolly Doc Martin, um, which is really like a bit of a holiday with it. <laughs> <laughs> which I shouldn't really say. They'll stop paying me. Um, anyway, that's lovely for four months. Um, but I've also excitingly got a film that I've written being filmed this year, yeah. uh, which is an adaptation of um, the letters I cobbled together of uh, Vita Sattva, Western Virginia Woolf. Mm. And I've now written a film script, and it's now being done. Yes. Which is sure a I very could... unusual thing it's to say, very hard. let me tell you. It yeah. is, I think it's been 12 years mm. we've been trying to mm. get it going. And have you found your lead yet? Uh, yeah, yes, we... Yes, we have, but okay. I... You can't uh, say yet. Uh, well, Gemma Archerton is playing Peter Salvador-West, mm -hmm. and um, an actress I don't know called Ava Green. I had nothing to do oh. with the casting. I am, I am, you know, okay. I can hand in the script, but the rest of it is nothing to do with me. Right. And um, uh, Ava Green is playing Virginia Woolf, and uh, I'm really mad that I like the director very much. Mm. It's very exciting news. Congratulations. So, 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 I mean, but that's, that's very unusual, mm. I mean, that that should be happening. When do you start filming? I don't. Oh, when they, does they, it I, start? I'm happily in Cornwall. <laughs> yeah. So soon it starts. <laughs> they, they're, they're changing my lines continuously, I'm sure. Oh. <laughs> so that's me. Great. And Sean? Uh, well, like Eileen, I'm doing some talking books at the moment and having a lovely time. I, I, I've sort of fell into the habit of doing plays back to back for about 11 years, so I took a break and, and I've been doing a bit of filming and television and, yes. and, and reconnecting with radio, which I love. Yes. I absolutely adore it. So I've been, I'm doing that at the moment, and then I'm off to Spain to make a film. Yes, can you talk yeah. about that? It sounds well, fascinating. Well, yes, I'm, and I'm going to play... I'm going to play Dali, Salvatore Dali's sister, to film about Miss Dali, and I'm going to play her, and um, which is, it, I, I'm sure it'll be wonderful. They're, they're all Catalan uh, people, the director and the producer, and um, it's going to be, it's going to be quite difficult, I think, because they, she has to tell the story, but all these wonderful Spanish actors will do all the flashbacks because she's she's quite near the end of her life when, when the film happens. And, and Salvatore Dali died some three months before that, so she's still in mourning for the brother she didn't speak to for 30 years. So, you know, it, it's a very... Um, I think it would be very beautiful because the director is very well known for, for photographing landscape that he mm. loves and he'll be doing it in the right place and it'll all be, be very interesting. But she didn't do anything. She didn't do anything. No, she didn't. She, d she just didn't. She had a sort of nervous breakdown when she was arrested during the war, and Dali wouldn't help her. She really? was put in prison, actually. And, wow. and um, she, she had a breakdown, and she came back, and then he said something really bad about his mother. And the family stopped talking to him, and they lived in the same village very often. He'd spend half the year in this village where they lived and it was tragic because she really lived through him. You know, she adored him and he adored her. And uh, when he married Gala, he didn't, um, he never spoke to her again. And it was really hard and she, she can't let it go, you know, because that was her life really. But from my point of view, it's quite difficult because she didn't actually do, do anything. anything. <laughs> yeah. <So laughs> 
anyway. Is it so. going to be in Spanish or in English? Well, I'm, I'm having lessons in Catalan dialect, so I'm assuming that I'm going to be able to speak all my part in English with, with a Catalan dialect. Well, yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, thank you very much, both Eileen Atkins and Sean Phillips. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.